Hi everyone and welcome to this month's episode of Across the Isle, your monthly theatre and arts criticism and discussion podcast based in Melbourne. We're coming to you live from, not live at all, but from Clifton Hill today. I'm Philip Teal and here is... Carla Donnelly. Hi, Philip. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Really well and kind of tired because we immersed ourselves very deeply in the annual Melbourne Festival this month and we'll be talking about it for the rest of the show. This is the festival that takes over little chunks of the city of Melbourne with its giant yellow and pink flags, the hot pink rabbit, and there's dance, music, physical theatre, things for children that you don't really understand and basically everything else, other than visual art, interestingly, and a bit sadly. It used to be known as the Spoleto Festival Melbourne, Mm. and then the Melbourne International Arts Festival, and some of our friends still, with fabulous levels of pretension, refer to it by the, you know, monosyllabic moniker, Arts. Um, the Melbourne Festival celebrated its 30th birthday. Happy birthday, Melbourne Festival! And thank you for a really thought-provoking time. There was so much stuff going on in this festival and easily enough to fill an episode of this little podcast. So stay with us. We're going to discuss two productions in detail. That's Desdemona and The Back Eye. And we'll also talk about the other things we saw during intermission. I can't wait to hear about some of the things you caught around the edges of the festival, Carla. Me neither. But first, I'd love to hear your overall impression of this 30th anniversary event. Are there things that you can generalise about as you walked around the city or as you saw shows or as you overheard people talking about the festival? What was the, what was the overall impression? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question that I, I, I don't even know how to respond. I've gone to the Arts Festival very deeply for the last maybe six or seven years and I've seen maybe I've seen every every theatre production you know because I used to be able to get $25 student tickets Uh, but this festival felt different and I don't know why Um, it it felt a bit more compressed or rushed or um, there was maybe a lack of of intervals or it just I I don't know that the timing felt compressed and rushed to me so I I sort of felt there was a lot of people running around a lot I've saw a lot of stressed people bursting through doors a lot of latecomers heaps of latecomers I thought it was really schmick there was a kind of professional quality is that normal for Melbourne Festival yeah Melbourne, Melbourne Festival is top notch and it's got big bucks it's got a fair bit of money. This this year, apparently, it, it's Josephine Ridge's last year as director and, um, you know, word on the street is, is that they'd actually had a deficit. So the program is, wasn't as rich as it is in normal years, but they also had the biggest box office Brilliant. that they've ever had. Mm. So um, they're handing over, you know, hopefully quite a bit of money to the next director and it just goes to show you that even with a, a deficit, you can have a festival that is extremely successful. One thing that you don't get as much of at this festival as you might with others like, say, the Melbourne Comedy Festival or Fringe is stuff that you just bump into or trip over. There was a huge – I felt like this year in particular there was a huge free program. Okay. At least half of the events were free. Where was it? <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> well, apart from art installations, uh, there was a lot of free talks. So I feel like almost every act that they brought in from overseas had a, had a free that's talk. That's true. That's true. Um, that complemented mm. the performance. But you don't get a lot of Federation Square, City Square along the Yarra things just – 
No, they had tandem, tan tandem. I can't remember Absolutely, how it's to pronounced. Absolutely, to open, to open. Which, yeah. unfortunately, I couldn't make, but it looked incredible. And that was something that Josephine Ridge said that she is most proud of, which is um, for overseas listeners, Aboriginal Welcome to Country ceremony to open the festival in Federation Square. So that, I thought, was very significant cultural public event. Mm. But, yeah, I, I, I take your point. I don't really feel like the free events are sort of widely known for the public and whether they stumble upon them or not. And whether the Melbourne Festival is aiming to achieve that. There yeah, might be maybe. a strategic direction that is excellence, that is, you know, you need to know your addresses in order to get in. <laughs> you need to read your guide carefully. I got that you feeling. Yeah, do. You do. Oh, my God. Festival is the only time where I'm like, oh, I'm at Arts House, but I'm supposed to be at the Arts Centre. <laughs> I... The, the Melbourne Festival is where I have to really have my game on and understanding where I need to be. How exactly. exciting. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, so as we discuss these shows, I'm, so, I'm sure that further kind of generalisations about the festival will come out of our mouths. But we're going to talk now about one of the really headlining and interesting shows of the festival this year. And this is Desdemona. Carla, can you take it away? So, yeah, of course, Desdemona, the text by Toni Morrison, um, the African-American poet, writer, everyone probably has come into contact with Toni Morrison from Oprah, particularly of people of our generation. Toni Morrison transports one of the most iconic, central and disturbing treatments of race in Western culture into the new realities and potential outcomes r- facing a rising generation of the 21st century. And that final paragraph in the program is is basically the entire play for me. I thought it was... A, an incredibly sophisticated expression of ideas about race and tropes, particularly the the skewering of tropes. So by taking Othello, which is, I don't know, what is it, 400 years old, 450 years old, and, you know, it it is the, the trope that we've used until this day of the angry black man who cannot control his savage temper. Mm -hmm. And then you twist it on its side to, you know, taking the woman who, uh, the, the female character who propelled the storyline along and was basically a prop to show all of the male's deficits and rage and make her the character. But then it became another trope about white feminism and white people speaking for black people and was very uh, deftly silently expressed by the African um, musicians and actors just sitting there on stage bearing witness to this two-hour monologue by, you know, a self-obsessed white woman, (laughs) you know. There was so much going on and it kind of felt like sitting through a essay to me and I walked out of it thinking, was that even valid to be performed? But it was because the performance of just having the African musician sitting there and having to bear witness to this white woman rabbiting on about her enslavement, (laughs) which is actually, you know, contextual at the same time, but it was incredibly effective. But ultimately I did find this pretty boring uh, to sit through, but... Uh, the the ideas in it propelled me for weeks. So how did you experience it, Philip? Well, it's so interesting to hear about how you saw and heard the production because people around me at this show were clearly kind of edging around their seats and ready to leave by the time the two hours without intermission had finished. But at the same time, it had that incantational quality and the words that were projected onto the screen behind the performers were as profound 
um, as you would expect from Toni Morrison. The songs that were being sung in the first language of the performer Rokia Traore, when translated into English, no doubt by Morrison herself, became these profound meditations on death and life and sex itself. Um, They were extremely ambitious in terms of their meaning and to hear them sung and Mm. accompanied and to take part in something that we were really cut off from in terms of the ritual uh, experience was profound for me. The, The end of the production has almost every performer turned away from the audience, taking part in whatever it is that's at the far end of the stage in their small circle of women. Did you find it convincing, the climax of the play, when there was a connection between this white woman and this African woman as women who had been abused and murdered by men? Because for me, that was the most ambitious uh, thing that Morrison was attempting. For me, it seemed that there was some transcendence, very... uh, dark and disturbing transcendence experienced by these two characters because of their shared victimization by men. And there was Mm. a successful kind of reconciliation across racial divisions uh, because of what they have experienced as women. It's kind of difficult to say because there was so much being said by this production. There were so many layers to it. And if you're talking about the conversation that Barbary was having with Desdemona in particular, where th- there is this inference by Toni Morrison that Barbary was potentially a slave. Uh, and that, that was kind of where the production really turned on its head for me because I felt the, the, the audience very restless. But, you know, this was also the first time Barbary spoke. Indeed. Literally. That's right. Yeah, so we'd heard all about Barbary and then she finally got her voice. So I I felt that it was true in the way that you're talking about how, yes, they both experience violence by men, but I thought it was also incredibly bar- like, you know, incredibly barbed, for lack of a better word, in terms of nobody listens. This was a play about illustrating how everyone is hurting and nobody is listening. Intriguing. The word listening um, seems important here because the thing that people remember about Desdemona from Shakespeare's play is that she becomes attracted in a surprising way to Othello because of the stories that he tells. And she is entranced in a kind of magical way by the sometimes mystical, sometimes military stories that he tells her. And here, what you're suggesting, and I think quite persuasively, is that Desdemona inherits that storytelling role and becomes a kind of blabbermouth herself. She actually, interestingly, voices Othello. And that's one of the more controversial elements of this production too, that Tina Benko, playing Desdemona, steps into role as the African-American husband who seduced her, but ramps up the violence of those stories. I mean, starts by seducing the audience with gorgeous Islander-type tales, adventure stories. Um, But by the end of it, they are explicitly about the rape of African women by soldiers, including Othello and Iago, who kind of bonded in this homosocial way over the violence that they committed against women. Mm. Extremely disturbing and also strange to hear that voice of Othello being um, taken on by a white woman. Well, there was a really discomfort uncomfortable element of blackface there. Yeah. And I think that that was explicit. 
Yes, yeah. yes, and 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 behind it all is Toni Morrison. So it doesn't matter how yes. um, how oddly the actor plays an African American, <laughs> which was incredibly odd. Not an African American, an African person. Yeah, you, you've got you. You have to trust somehow that this Nobel Prize winning voice of African American experience has has thought about these things before us. <laughs> and, no, but also ultimately, again, we come back to, and I feel kind of uncomfortable talking about all of this stuff without a person of colour here to, you know, contribute to the conversation because by having Toni Morrison very deftly going through this way, it, you know, it, it's highlighting how we're still not listening. Mm. Still. Mm. But I feel like it did sort of come to a conclusion at the end of she there is a hope there was a hopefulness in that in that final scene when they're all sitting around, I don't know, maybe it was like a grave or something like that with their backs turned to us, that there is potentially hope with women coming together or there's potential for us to to cross that divide. And it might take time and it might be mysterious and some people will be excluded from it. It was sweet in the way that um, that Desdemona, completely oblivious to her privilege and completely mired in her own persecution, you know, fantastically or not, was able to listen. Like once Barbary finally got her 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 speech, her monologue, or you know, her side of the story, that Desdemona did listen. Yes. Yeah. As she had been trained to do. Yes. (laughs) Another moment that's interesting is when the voice of Cassio, the character from Shakespeare's original play, is amplified and kind of broadcast through the auditorium um, in a really radical silencing of every character on the stage. The music stops, the women stop speaking, and it's the white guy. Yeah, just again. <laughs> in, yeah, just telling the story of how he's going to set up his new kingdom yes. now that the problematic figures are out of the way. And it's definitely not optimistic. Um, so in some ways, that might be somehow part of the ritual for the audience to imagine how awful things can be when people stop halfway without actually working to reconcile, to listen to other stories, to sit down together as the characters finally do. One little theme of the festival for me, actually, was overhearing audience members talking about how long everything was. And when I walked out of this production, the things you said a bit earlier were being echoed across the audience. I mean, I heard somebody say that it was a very repetitious production and that that was a shame because the first two songs had been so beautiful. And I, fe- I, I did feel like turning to that person and saying, look, do we, do we have point. two hours yeah. in us? Uh-huh. Can, we, can, we, can we listen to these stories even for a while. And that's where I felt the performance was very effective because like we, and I wondered in the beginning, like, you know, was it the pr- production that wanted a two, wanted two hours without an interval or was that the insistence of Melbourne Festival? I'm not sure, but I get the feeling that it's the production because we're supposed to sit there and listen. We can't talk. That is what it's about. I agree. Right. And it is that repetitive oppressiveness of being told who you are, what you're doing, and you know it. it, it you're echoes, being schooled. <laughs> it, it, no, but it echoes that. It echoes that you know uncomfortable feeling of people who are, are oppressed, minorities who are oppressed. The the thing that was a real light bulb moment for me with this play was having again, as I said, with the African um, musicians sitting to the side side of the stage and just you know 
all eyes on this this white woman talking. But also I found it really interesting that, you know, the only time that they were allowed to speak or that they had something to contribute was through music. And it really echoed that whole, like, African-American slaves in the cotton fields. It was the only thing that they could ever have, gospels, music. It was the only thing that was theirs, that they were allowed. And, you know, it was the the, the vessel for their stories and their history. Yes. Uh, so that it added that extra dimension for me. And that might account for why the white person who said that comment that I overheard about the songs being so beautiful was, was self-comforting to an extent. We are used to being exposed to these cultures through music. Yeah. Um, and, and the way those types of music have been derived within our own musical culture. Um, but the show doesn't let us get away with just that. It really insists that we think about um, the stories, the words, the experiences and the perspectives of people who've been silenced. There's one more trope that I found really fascinating as well, because if you look at Othello as an actual trope that is still repeated to this day, it is mind-blowing 450 years later, but there's also the Spike Lee uh, magical Negro Negro trope, which is the character of Barbary. So the magical Negro, much like Brett Easton Ellis's The Gay Magical Elf, it's, you know, these characters are completely selfless. They have no lives except to, you know, add spiritual guidance or be a spiritual ethereal being for the white person in trouble and to give them all of their guidance and then they ultimately die right (laughs) much like the female character ultimately dies as well so that was a that was a a very amazing kind of loop for me as well to see that trope repeated again yes and i'm thinking back to the original shakespeare play in which the arrival of the white ruler at the end seems to be what we've all been waiting for Mm. and it is deeply problematic and fascinating that people could walk out of the globe theater thinking Jolly good. That was interesting for a moment. We we let a bit of chaos happen. Sure. We thought about listening to our African nannies. We allowed somebody to be in charge who was non-white, and that's all over now. Yes. <laughs> but we also need to give Desdemona a break in herself as well, because if you think about the, 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 the jumping point of this being the characterization of Desdemona and actually giving her a voice, again, it's the woman who, you know, wanted to step outside of her role as the subservient woman. And she chose to have a life of her own and she chose to marry the person who she wanted to marry. And what happens to her in the end? Punished. Murdered again. Punished. Yeah. Well, that's been fascinating. Um, thanks so much for that discussion. Can I just ask you, did you enjoy it? I loved it. Did you find it entertaining? I found it really entertaining. I, I had a I had a um, profound, compelling, upsetting, and worthwhile experience, and was calmed and comforted by the music making on the stage. The music was lovely, I'm, and, I, and I'm happy to sort of accept how that's perhaps problematic that the music was being delivered in a way that's more accusatory than usual or with that accusatory element of that style of music fully exposed and translated literally for me. Um, So it it added to my experience of hearing music from Africa and at the same time I profoundly enjoyed hearing it. The crowd that I went to, the performance that I went to, um, the Sumner Theatre is incredibly uncomfortable. There's no leg room. The seats are fine, but there's lo- no leg room. And two-hour performance with no interval. And you, you, I just I questioned the programming of it at that time because it, it should have been on at 7.30, not 8.30, because the majority of the audiences who are paying $100 to see a Toni Morrison you know, piece, you know, they're all kind of in their 60s. Everyone was very restless. 
um, and it created this atmosphere of restlessness. Okay. And a lot of people left, mm. which was very noisy and disruptive. Um, it, it was an unpleasant experience for me to go and see this just because the audience was, I believe, incredibly un, incredibly badly behaved. Someone was snoring. <laughs> oh Another God. person had this like hideous barking frog cough Ooh. that just went off like the whole time. So when I say that I found it boring, I just I wasn't able to get into it. Because there was so much chaos around me with the audience. So I don't know how Melbourne Festival can kind of take that on board as, a, as some information, but it, it, it almost ruined the whole thing for yeah, me. Yeah, space is important. It, it, there was a mismatch between the material and the setting yeah. of the theatre. Yeah. All right. It's intermission, which isn't happening very much, or at least almost never happened at the Melbourne Festival this year, as we've discovered. <laughs> what, is, what is wrong with people? Give us a break. I actually didn't go to any performance that had an intermission. Me neither. That's, that's weird. Times are changing. I don't like it. I wonder why that is. At least our podcast has one. We'll be maintaining <laughs> yeah. this tradition. Um, so, what have you been up to? What else did you see at the festival? Oh, okay. Well, why don't you pick what, what, well, what you want to hear okay. about? I want to talk about Bronx Gothic. Because okay. there are some continuities and connections between the production we just spoke about and this show by Okwi Okpokwasili, who opens her remarkable one-woman performance with a very long and abstract dance facing away from the audience. Oh, my God. Uh, before she slowly, inexorably moves towards the single microphone in the middle of the space from where she reads letters between two young women characters that build in intensity, interrupted by um, aggressive sound effects and lighting effects and things smashing. But no, it's mostly about words uh, for the next hour without intermission. <laughs> well, and when an I, hour without intermission no, is indeed, fine, Philip, Indeed, and I agree. And <laughs> on the way home on the tram, when I heard somebody talking about how long it had been, I wanted to engage them in conversation about how, come on, we can toughen up a bit, can't we? Yeah. We can listen to an upsetting story about race inequality and gender oppression for an hour, even if it is in North Melbourne, can't we? Um, I found this confronting and... Impressive the way that the voice was used by the performer to really embody these two characters in a calm but precise way was mesmerizing. One moment that was striking is when the lights of the house were fully illuminated suddenly and there was a kind of extended staring contest between the performer and the audience. Awesome. Uh, if you thought that Desdemona was uncomfortable, this was about discomfort and I started to take a kind of masochistic pleasure in that. Um, even getting into the space Specifically was with Melbourne audiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was about time that someone from New York flew over to stare at us <laughs> <laughs> in our self-congratulatory sort of, oh, here we are at the opening night sort of way. But the material was just explicit enough and just suggestive enough to be a really memorable performance of words. There weren't many um, words in some of the other shows we saw, including the back eye, which we'll get to. Um, but this was very <laughs> was much about... almost no words in the right. back eye, yeah. yeah. This was very much about the written word, the memory of written words. She was actually holding paper that she would drop. Um, and so the letters built up around her feet. And as a wordy guy myself, I found that really enjoyable. It was, it was very close to storytelling. But what were the feels... 
Good, good. I, I don't know, maybe I just enjoy more things than other people do. I mean, it wasn't designed to um, be funny or relaxing at all, but it was definitely intellectually stimulating and beautifully made. Okay. Mm. I, yeah, I, I really didn't pull my finger out in time to get there and it was completely sold out, so unfortunately I couldn't make it. But I saw a couple of things that I want to talk about, one being Melbourneian audiences, which, you know, f- again, for our overseas listeners, are notoriously the most difficult in the world in terms of being aloof and not interactive. Unimpressed. Unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good word. Uh, so I went and saw a Batshiva dance company, and the first one, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like a medley, not a medley, but it was, you know, a lot of... A triple bill or a double bill? Or a... No, it was like maybe eight or nine wow. sort of little snippets of, mm. of pieces that they've done in the past. So it was a good introduction, I guess, to the breadth of the company. But there was one piece where they, um, to this like horrible kind of rave music, somewhere over the rainbow, dragged all of these people on stage. From the audience? From the audience. Lol. And, um, you know, at, you know, the art centre as well. It's a huge stage. And you just see these people kind of, like, stumble up there <laughs> like a deer in headlights. But every single... There's like a, there was, like, a nanosecond where they're like, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, commit. Mm. So they all faltered in that one second and then just went berserk. Exciting. To this rave music. How funny. And then they're on stage for like 10 minutes to all these other different music pieces and being danced around by the, the lead dancers from Batsheva. And it was actually very beautiful. I've heard that visiting artists are warned about the fact that Australians <laughs> never stand up, even if you're really great and don't make very much noise. And what, and about, but like. Like, what about musical acts where they just talk through the entire performance? Yeah, it's and eat chips, repulsive. please. And, <laughs> but the other thing I saw that I really enjoyed was Clint Mansell, who... Um, cool. Yeah, he's the uh, ex-lead singer of Populate Itself, now turned this whole other career of um, musical scores, uh, particularly for Darren Aronofsky. That was great. Lots of oldies like me, middle-aged Generation X people all, you know, turned out for the evening. I took my partner, who's significant, well, not significantly younger than me, but quite younger, and I thought he would enjoy it, but then at the end of it, he was like, fuck, he's a miserable bastard. It's <laughs> nice to feel old. <laughs> I just thought, but that's my, that's Generation X. I yep. found it so comforting. How gorgeous. Yeah. I went to see a little bit of music too. Um, there was a show called Water Pushes Sand. This was the Australian Art Orchestra basically offering us a travelogue of their trip or trips to Sichuan in China. And they have been collaborating with musicians from that region of China in a kind of pretty profound cultural exchange, which for me um, meant that I got to hear extreme jazz improvisation on traditional Chinese instruments. Oh, my God. And I got to see really high-quality Western jazz musicians engage in a profound way with the sounds of Sichuan traditional folk music. Uh, the climax was one it of those... It sounds good or bad? Thank you. Yes, I was worried. <laughs> um, especially when I saw that there would be, you know, a mask-shifting dance... Oh. to finish with. I, I was there with some is. of my Chinese friends who broke into spontaneous applause all by themselves when the dancer in a particular mask entered the arena because they knew what was coming next, right? Uh. But the, the rest of the audience needed to sort of learn that not only was there going to be, you know, 30 or so 
magical mask changes in the next few minutes, but that it was somehow traditional to kind of wildly applaud between each of them. Oh. Uh, so, yes, no doubt they had also been briefed about how Melbourneian audiences will just raise their eyebrow at you, even if you're a kind of backflipping oh. clown. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. And, and no, I take your point seriously that it was a risky endeavour. And the reason this was successful is that it was late in the day. These people are friends. They talk. They're probably bilingual. It was immersive. They've actually spent time in the city that they were describing. It was intercultural exchange through music done properly. Okay. Uh, and not in a way that was too earnest because they just like music too much. They yeah. actually just want to entertain in that kind of improvisatory way. Um, and I left the theatre feeling um, kind of unproblematically entertained. It was really joyous and fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I will say one thing about Bathsheba. Um, there was lots of children there, like small children, like between, you know, from like four years old to teenagers, fantastic. like heaps. And the thing that actually really elevated my experience, because I probably liked about half of it, half of it I found awesome, the other half I was a bit like this, but I had this four-year-old little boy behind me who was just the best commentator, and he's like, what's happening? <laughs> Why are they doing that? Mom, this is boring. Oh, you know, it was, it was an excellent compliment. It was just nice to see so many children there. That's great. Yeah. And final comment, I suppose, about the kind of, creeping diversity of what's going on at the Melbourne Festival is that we're talking about a lot of stuff that isn't made by white men and that's yes. that's enjoyable yes and timely yes there's okay. the bell quick uh, uh, I've got to go to the loo <laughs> wait for me <laughs> it'll be two more hours <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now it's time for us to cross the river again twice in two months and talk about Theatre Works production of The Bacchae. In fact, the companies responsible for this are St. Martin's uh, Youth Theatre, I think, and Fraught Outfit, which is the company that Adina Jacobs runs. The Bacchae, based on the ancient Greek tragedy, uh, was very, very different to what anyone could possibly have expected. Not only was it really informed by teenagers being the main theatre makers and presenters. But as we said earlier, there were almost no words from the original production, the original Greek play by Aeschylus. Aeschylus, no, Euripides. But yes, instead we were treated to a kind of physical and musical event. The program notes talk about a city teetering on the edge of crisis. A god arrives in the guise of a mortal. A monster defies the audience. Boundaries collapse. Old, young, boy, girl, human, beast, mortal, divine, good, bad, light, and dark. And indeed, uh, we do have a god arriving, not only in the guise of a mortal, but in the guise of a teenage girl. Yeah, getting ready for school. Yeah, talking about waking up and Vegemite and her annoying sister and losing her shoe. I actually bumped into this performer in the street yesterday and gave her a big, happy, gay uncle-type congratulations, Um, and she was thrilled and had obviously had an excellent time making this show. There were so many teenage girls in 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 the audience, including one from my class, that I just bumped into, um, and what my student said to me after the production was, that was erotic, but it was by children, so that balanced it. <laughs> okay. Thought, Thanks for that review. Mm. That's 
troubling and I'm going to go and talk to my colleagues again now. Um, and indeed, we kind of thought further about what she had said and wondered whether this was what teenage girls think is erotic. If that's the case, we have some talking and schooling <laughs> to do. I've never seen anything quite as explicit when it comes to the depiction of sexual brutality. I mean, it really went beyond violence. The arrival in this community of young women of maleness and mm. brute power uh, in the form of the girls kind of dressing as as rough men uh, was really troubling. The theatre company says that it makes shows for adults by young people, which is nicely controversial. I like the idea that they would take child performers seriously enough to make serious theatre. And it's clear that they had been really mentored well to produce something that was profoundly meaningful to them and impacting for the audience. My heart was racing at the end of this show. The final scene was so climactic and disturbing and dark that I was experiencing it almost like um, a kind of sporting event. Huh? I actually thought pretentiously to myself that maybe there was some attempt to recreate the Dionysian festival experience in its totality. The fifth century event where all of these plays were first performed was not just about earnestly watching a play, but getting drunk yeah. and leaving the city and spending time surrounded by strangers and then sort of preparing to return to take off the mask to be normal again. There was something um, visceral in that way about this production. Although having said that, there were times when all we really saw were teenagers looking at their phone and sitting on the couch and, as we said, talking about getting ready for school in the morning. So there was a deliberateness to how the life of teenagers was described in all its plainness, only to be suddenly and quite radically disrupted by these scenes of orgiastic hair-flinging and fighting and dressing up as rapists. <laughs> How'd you find it? Um, it was almost like a Lynchian type experience for me. I, I'm not, as you know, we're aware probably from the last episode, I'm not schooled in the classics at all. I did like a little sort of brief outline of what the back eye, the back eye, you know, was about. Oh, I read Wikipedia going into it. Um, <laughs> So, like, I sort of followed along with half of it, and then the second half I was like, I kind of understand where this is it going or what this is about. It had nothing to do with Euripides. No. <laughs> like, who, like, it doesn't matter how much you knew or didn't know because this was something so different. The only speech from the original play was, was said all at once and was that speech centre. about people being dismembered yeah. by the, the Bacchae. But there was, there was, there was a, as far as I could tell, there was a rough kind of... Um, you know, translation of, you know, the Minads or Maynads in the beginning all going crazy as Dionysus is going, it's coming further into town. Yes, and also the idea that because the people of the city don't believe that Dionysus is descended from Zeus, um, they will be punished by Dionysus. Yes. That actor playing um, Dionysus in the form of a teenage girl uh, says, if you don't believe me, I'll punish you. Yes. Uh, I sort of saw this as... As a lot of Adina's work, which is um, women as weapons uh, and, you know, both ways, the weaponization of the female form and um, the, the danger that women pose to the world, it was an incredibly potent 
telling of that. It didn't feel erotic to me. It was anti-erotic. It was, you know, like those teenage girls in bikinis gyrating on the stage was so hollow and deliberately hollow. I agree. That it was it was a massive head fuck. And that's what I said on Twitter. As soon as I walked out of this, I was like, the back a massive head fuck. Are these girls' bodies, they're just so perfect. They're beautiful and they, perfect. And they oil them in front yeah. of us. <laughs> You know, but it's 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 empty. It's without substance, without the you know the substance of a life lived, and you know the form without without you know function. It's the the danger of the possibility of the function, and I found that metaphor for women and feminism and the patriarchy to be very deft. Is the suggestion that that's as far as it can go for? For women in our culture, is that what the suggestion is? To me, I sort of saw it as, you know, the, the patriarchal revolt is against the potential of women. I see. So using these teenage for- female forms that only have a lifetime of potential in front of them and currently have potential for sick people, you know, if they want to abuse them, um, that is where that, that da- that's where that danger is. And I found this incredibly sinister by using bikini clad teenage girls. It was, it was very sinister and I felt the same as you. Like I walked out of there just going, what the fuck just happened to me? And yet there was some sense, at least at a meta level, that these young women working together so cooperatively and harmoniously in terms of the work that had gone into the production mm. represented some kind of clue about how this might be overcome. Um, I just was so relieved to see them smiling during the curtain calls because they had not been <laughs> until that point. And I thought, can we sit down? Can we have a sandwich? You know, there must there must be some talk that you can have together now based on your experience. I mean, I just went into full-blown teacher mode, clearly. <laughs> um, and there was this sense that they were evoking care from the audience. There was this real sense of their fragility, their vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and some little clue about, well, if you were to guide us, this would be the direction in which to take our guidance. Yeah. But I, I really feel like as well, it's like young people, whether they're females or males, they are potential weapons and bombs to go off and they have inherent power. And I think that is something in a society and you would know teaching teenage girls. And this is something as a society, we don't pay ten, enough attention to in terms of developing these people. We, we, chastise them we treat them like children but they are fully functional fully opinionated fully formed spiritual human beings that are out in the world they're just less experienced and i think that that was a very big element of this production and this is where i respect adina jacobs use of the classics because that is present in euripides play the idea that young women specifically have power and need to be contained for problematic social structures to survive is fully experienced and expressed in the original production as far as we can know it okay. and is is resurrected here in a way that's clearly meaningful to Melbourneian audiences. I felt that the translation was beautifully specific to our place and time 
uh, like Antigone had been yeah. that Adina Jacobs directed at the Malt House last month. She seems very um, consistently interested in finding ways to use ancient texts to expose contemporary Melbourne as a site for profound ancient problems. She's also used St. Martin's in the past for her neon show a couple of years ago called the uh, On the Bodily Education of Young Girls. And again, it was another play that had almost, I don't think it had any art text whatsoever. And it was just these ballerinas <laughs> essentially going, going through dance movements and clustering together and moving around and using these young people it's so profound i found this to be such a profound experience and comment on the world um you know and i i'm trying to understand dance more which is why i went to to batsheva and you know how we can express physically what can be said as deftly with words and i that really came across with this i think we have to mention the female musicians there was also musicians there was live score uh we had a drummer we had a couple of uh, classical musicians oh the music was fantastic and i'm just kind of shuffling my notes around to get the name of the composer kelly ryle but i got my full dose of proper contemporary music in this production surprisingly i wasn't expecting that um i'd already sort of been bitter about how that wasn't really a feature of the melbourne festival's programming but for adina jacobs to work so closely with a composer and with musicians. I mean, there are such great musos in their teens in this city to have them actually making new music together in a way that was authentic and powerful and um, controversial was just wonderful and spooky. <laughs> and we have to talk about, there. Were, I think it was 17 go- young girls, but there was also two boy sopranos. <laughs> That came out in Adidas tracksuits. I'm so immature. Yes. They came out yes. in Adidas tracksuits to sing like what? heavenly angels. What? Yes. Wow. It was just, yeah, it was insane. Thank Total you so insanity. much. Adina Jacobs and everyone who made the show. Fantastic work and really thought provoking, as we've heard. It's November. I know. Wow. That came quickly. <laughs> I mean, that's a cliche, not really. It's been a terribly long and painful where year. Does, where does it go? What's happening in November, though, other than horse racing? Or is it just horse racing? Oh, don't even talk about it. Um, surely there's some kind of football still, isn't there? Oh, no, there was the, oh. world, there was the world Cup. I don't even know if we won. There's Should opera. We? Oh, actually, there is opera. There's free opera oh. on the 14th of November. I always miss the free Sydney My Music Bowl things. So I'm announcing this one in advance. 14th of November. Let's go. Get there at four. Eat cold chicken. It's a Melbourne tradition. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have something coming up for November. It's a new festival. Ooh, like we need more festivals. Please. But it's called Enterobang. Say more. It's a festival at the Wheeler Centre. M. M. Sexton, who was the director of Next Wave, is now at the Wheeler Centre. And I think that this is her first you know, proper festival that she's organising for the Wheeler Centre. And so basically they're sort of like getting all of these thinkers together, writers, uh, and they're letting the audience direct the conversation. So there was a period of time where you could submit questions and then those questions were upvoted and now they're being assigned to these um, one-on-one talks or, or group talks. Wow. So, you know, the the program looks wonderfully diverse. There's lots of women, lots of people of colour. Um, but the two people I'm most interested in is Cheryl Strayed is coming out. Hooray! And Rob Delaney, who is an American comedian who became famous on Twitter, who is 
total power babe. How exciting. And who made the best TV show of the year, Catastrophe. Um, he's coming out as well and he's being interviewed by Ben Law, who's uh, whom I'm sure is absolutely wetting his pants over. So, cool. Uh, that's happening at the end of the month, like the 25th, 26th. So that's what I'm most excited about Okay, this month. we've got some things to do. Hooray! November is not so empty <laughs> yeah. after all. <laughs> And we will be back to talk about the theatrical things that we managed to get up to next month because that's a wrap for this show, um, another Melbourne Festival, another episode of Across the Isle. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to us. And do get in touch in any way that you would like. You can contact us at us at acrossisle.com. <laughs> uh, our website is acrossisle.com. We also tweet at acrossisle. We'd also really appreciate any bitcoins or other types of virtual coins you can throw at us. Uh, seek out Across the Isle at Patreon.com. It's a fabulous website where you can support us and other artists with medium, small or tiny monthly donations. That would be exceptionally kind. Our producer is Ron from Shackwest Productions. Audio is happening wherever you listen in this city. Shack West is making lots of sound recordings of it. So for all your technical needs when it comes to sounds, screens and such like, see Ron and his team at Shack West. This lovely tune is by Mark Burridge. Thank you for loaning it to us, Mark, and you can find more of his work at SoundCloud. Deep thanks to the artists who put on all the shows at the Melbourne Festival, the Melbourne Fringe and everything else in Melbourne this year. Without you, we would have to talk about the news. <laughs> Show synopses read on this program are property of the relevant production companies and reproduced here for the purpose of review. Thanks, everyone. See you next month. To catch our next show, make sure you subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you first found this. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Philip. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye.